You are listening to The Stender with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit JcastNetwork.org. So any of us who are parents have been there before. That moment where you start weighing to yourself the uh, cost-benefit analysis of taking your child of whatever age the child might be, might be two, might be five, might be 15, and finding the nearest and highest window and chucking that child out of the window. We've been there before, all of us, and you don't need to admit it in person about when exactly that happened, but you've been there before, I'm sure. My friend uh, once told me a story where uh, he like, like walked me through each step of this process for him. He and his wife and their uh, kids, they had, I think, three kids at the time, or maybe there was just two kids at the time, and they were away for a wedding or something like that, and they were, uh, and they were staying in you know, some hotel room, and they had gotten these like tents for their kids to sleep in who were toddlers at the time, and just the kids were not having it. Like, we're not having sleeping, but it was like, you know, it was like a hotel room. So, like, if the kids aren't sleeping, nobody's sleeping. It was just, like, nonstop. Like, if one kid <clears throat> had finally managed to go to sleep, the other kid would wake them up and then wake everybody up. And it was just nonstop, on and on and on, until, like, 3 or 4 a.m. And finally, like, they, they both sort of look at each other with the same awareness and recognition in their head that, okay, like right now, we are going to take these children and we are going to throw them out the window. And then the better angels of their nature prevailed. Not really like it's a bad thing to throw your kids out the window, but, you know, because then we'd have to deal with the cops. They'd inevitably find us. Like, even if we sped away, like, they would know. They would figure it out. And so we got to just deal with it, right? So we've all been there. So, um... (laughs) Our Torah portion uh, this week takes a moment uh, to pause for a brief word from that parental id, okay? And it uh, it has the following law in it. It says, Ki ish ben sorer umore, eneno shomea bekol aviv uvekol imo, oto velo ishma alehem. So if a person has a wayward and rebellious child, a wayward and rebellious son, uh, he doesn't listen uh, to uh, the voice of his father or to the voice of his mother, and he uh, and he has deviated from them uh, and uh, and doesn't listen to them. So note the repetition of the phrase: he doesn't listen to them. Not only because that is the common, you know, uh, malady, but uh, but I want to take special note of that phrase: he doesn't listen to them, which is repeated twice now. So his mother and father should grab him. And they should take him to the elders of his city and uh, to the uh, gates of his place. So you take him to the elders of the city who hold court at the city gate. And so you should say to the elders of his city, our chi- this, this, our child, is wayward and rebellious. He doesn't listen to our voice. There it is again. He doesn't listen to our voice. Zolel vesove. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Urgamuhu kolanshe iro ba'avanim vamet. And so all of the people of the town should stone him with stones and he should die. 
And you should, thus you shall sweep out the evil from your midst. And all of Israel will hear and be afraid. Now that last part probably didn't need to be said, because, you know, you take the wayward and all your sons to the city gates, and you stone them with stones, and yeah, I imagine the rest of the children in town are going to be shaking in their boots the next time they think about not listening to mommy and daddy. So it's an interesting law, if by interesting you mean really problematic, and really objectionable, um, that, you know, most of us, even though we might have had that moment of that parental aid where I'm going to take you to the gates of the city, and they're going to all stone you with stones, most of us, who are in our right minds, there are obviously people who hopefully are in jail, uh, and <laughs> maybe worse, uh, who aren't in them, who don't uh, uh, stop themselves from that impulse, but most of us uh, not only stop that impulse, but our superego kicks in and reminds us uh, that uh, that, that the proper way of dealing with a uh, child who isn't uh, behaving the way you want that child to behave is not to throw them out the window or to stone them with stones. And so we, in our culture especially, that um, eschews um, even modest uh, uh, disciplinary violence against kids, this is a very problematic passage. Turns out that it was also very problematic to the ancient rabbis. So much so that when they discuss it in the Talmud, the Talmud, the great compendium of rabbinic commentary um, on the Torah's laws, uh, the, the, the place from which most of today's Jewish law is derived in one way or another, the rabbis the Talmud debate the issue of the ben Sora or Mora, the wayward and rebellious child, and they do a very close reading of the text, so much so that they render the law entirely obsolete. Right? When they say that the mother and father should take the child to the elders of the city, for example, uh, and say to the elders of the city what, they, what the rabbis say is that by close reading the text, they have to not only say it at the same time, but they have to have the exact same voice. Right? In other words, they have to sound alike, the mother and father, in this context. If they don't sound alike, the case is thrown out. Right? What else? that uh, the child has to be in a certain age bracket to count as a ben sorer or moret. Why so? Because we all know, because we've all had, many of us at least have had bar and bat mitzvahs, uh, what is the age of adulthood in Judaism? So at 13, the parents are no longer responsible for the behavior of the child. The child is responsible for their own transgressions. So if they violate the law, they might be stoned anyway, but not because the parents take them to the gates of the city and stone them. So the child can't be older than 13, but also can't be, old, can't be younger, they said, than 12 and a half. <laughs> because uh, younger than 12 and a half, um, he is considered a child and is not uh, accounted for any transgression. Right? He has no agency, no ability to say, okay, you know, like, maybe this gluttony that I'm doing is the wrong thing to do. He doesn't even have an obligation to not be gluttonous yet. So they fit this very narrow window of, of, of age that the uh, child has to be, and on and on and on. That's how they limit the, uh, the, the law. And so ultimately one of the rabbis... Uh, before 12 and a half? Uh, maybe. <laughs> and maybe they should. Um, so anyway, they narrowed this law into obsolescence. 
which as you can imagine for rabbis that don't want any of the Torah's laws to be obsolete, they want it to be lived, they want it to be practiced, might have objections to that. So one rabbi says, if it's so, then why is it in the Torah? Right? If you're saying that this is true, that there never was and never will be such a thing as a wayward, rebellious child like the Torah is describing, then why does the Torah even talk about it? And the answer that is given is, drush v'kibel schar, so that you'll study it and attain a reward through study. So then the obvious question, what's the reward that's attained through studying an obsolete law? And that's why I had you pay attention to the precise language that's being used in this passage. Because if you read it again, what is the complaint that the parents have of the child? He doesn't listen to us. He doesn't listen to us. He doesn't listen to us. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Three times he doesn't listen to his parents. And the fourth time they make a specific claim, he's a glutton and a drunkard. Let's hold aside the he doesn't listen to us thing for just a second and focus just on the glutton and drunkard thing. Now, um, some of you know that I spent a little bit of time uh, in, uh, in my rabbinic training uh, working for um, an addiction treatment facility. And there are a lot of pathways uh, that uh, um, uh, have people find their way into, um, uh, into treatment. Um, but one thing that was very common that was almost universal in every patient with whom I worked was that on some fundamental level, their addiction was related to a deep sense of insecurity. A sense that the chemical or the behavior, because it wasn't always chemicals, the behavior insulated them against the feeling of vulnerability that comes with not knowing whether people like me, whether I'm going to be accepted, whether I'm loved enough. Now, there are lots of reasons, lots of factors that go into uh, um, addiction. Just because somebody has insecurities doesn't mean they're going to be an addict. Just because somebody's an addict doesn't mean that they have insecurities. But it was so universal that I had to say that there's got to be something to this that, that, that compels a person to turn to self-destructive behaviors or to turn to numbing chemicals in order to defend themselves, insulate themselves against the feeling of maybe I'm not wanted enough. Maybe I'm not loved enough. Maybe I'm not embraced enough. And if I scratch that enough beneath the surface, and I'm not a psychiatrist, so I play one on TV sometimes, I would often find real challenges that those people had with their parents, often exclusive, but not always. And very often was related to the fact that many of them grew up in perfectly stable homes. But in their self-perception, there was a very definite sense that even if mom and dad told me they loved me, their actions did not always reflect it. And that's in terms of commission. They did things to me that even though they said, I love you, or even I'm doing this because I love you, indicated to me that they didn't really love me for me. Or by omission. They were too focused on their own career. 
They're too focused on their own addiction. They didn't spend time with me. They didn't take an interest in the things I was interested in. They didn't show me the kinds of things that show, that demonstrate to a person that they are, at their core, loved. So now go back to the core complaint that the parents have against the child. He doesn't listen to me. He doesn't listen to me. And what starts to emerge for me from this passage is a picture of a style of parenting. A style of parenting that is all about what I say and nothing about what I do. That's all about the kinds of behaviors I want to tell you to do and a total absence of agency and responsibility of modeling for a child the kinds of behaviors that a child needs A, to know that they are loved in everything that they do and B, to know what's truly right and wrong. Because more than what a parent tells a child about what's right and wrong, they see what's right and wrong based on what a parent does. And that is so powerful to me as a parent and so hard to me as a parent and one that uh, Lord knows I am uh, far from perfect at because um, like the saying sometimes goes, um, you get the child you deserve. Uh, it's sometimes true. In many cases for me, I get the child I deserve. I'm not, you know, uh, always the best listener. I'm not always uh, the best at uh, following directions. Sometimes I can be a little bossy. You know, all the on and off. Right? These are the behaviors I demonstrate. And though I might tell my daughter or my son, don't do X, Y, or Z thing, the truth comes back to me that these are the very things that I am modeling in front of her, in front of her. And I suspect that if each of us are honest with ourselves in our own relationships with our parents or our own relationships with our kids, we would see elements of that dynamic sometimes coming to the foreground, sometimes, if we're lucky, just here and there, that our behavior doesn't match the kinds of moral lessons we want to teach our kids. But it's not only true of the dynamic of parents and children. It's also true of lots of the interpersonal dynamics that we have in our lives. Spouses, friends, co-workers, superiors, employees, strangers. Very often, what we say doesn't reflect how we live, what we model. And then we're surprised when the behavior, the very behavior that we're modeling, that's not necessarily what we want the other person to be doing, comes back and is presented to us right before our faces. And we say, you didn't listen to me. But the truth of the matter is, yes, they did. Because your actions spoke a lot louder than your words. And so through an inoperable law, through studying an inoperable law, what our Torah, what our rabbis teach us is a model for behavior, a model of being in the world. That so often, it's not what we say, but what we do that truly matters. It matters to our children, it matters to our spouses, it matters to our friends, it matters to our coworkers, our superiors, our employees, it matters to everyone we encounter. And so let us, this Shabbat and every Shabbat, and every moment that we're conscious of it, pledge to put out 
and to model the kinds of behaviors in the world that we would like to see other people reflect back on us. Then we will need to take no one to the city gates because we'll truly be living in a world where our actions speak and people listen.